Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hi, John Schwab here from Curtain Call, and welcome to episode 66 of the Curtain Call Theater Podcast, the podcast that brings you backstage as close as you possibly can be to meet the people that make theater happen. It is a very exciting week for us all here at Curtain Call as we are launching our all-new website, which is bursting at the seams with tools and functions designed specifically for the theater professional. Um, If you are one or you know one, be sure to log on to CurtainCallOnline.com and take a look. And if you're not already a member, join up and start connecting to the theater industry today. Uh, I hope you enjoy the new website as much as we have enjoyed building it. And now for this week's podcast. Polly Constable is one of the theater world's most acclaimed and decorated lighting designers. Um, She's a winner of four Olivier's, two Tony Awards, Um, and her numerous credits at the National Theatre, where she recently had productions on in all three theatres simultaneously. It's quite a feat. Uh, They include War Horse, Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, This House, Angels in America, and Follies. Theo Bosenkett and Matt Humphrey recently managed to find a window in her insanely busy schedule to catch up with her in the National Theatre foyer. Um, Have a listen. Paulie Constable, thank you very much for talking to Curtain Call. Absolute pleasure. We have uh, long admired your work and um, wanted to get a word with you. You're so busy that <laughs> I know this is a very precious window of time um, in what is no doubt a very hectic schedule because your current projects include obviously Follies which is here, you're in the about to open Heisenberg yeah. in the West End. Um, how do you first question really how do you manage your schedule um it's a, it's a bit of a kind of military campaign really i mean it's interesting that people think that i'm very busy because i so i i actually do less projects than many people who work in the same discipline as me um but i suppose i am quite drawn to difficult projects <laughs> so you know angels in america was sort of two and a half months really um, I also, you know, I grew up working with companies like this to complicite and people like that. I came very much from a devised background. So I've always been used to spending quite a lot of time in rehearsals. So I'm not really good at kind of, kind of screaming from one production into another, sort of sliding into the seat and kind of starting lighting. I sort of, I'm quite slow and I'm quite, um, I like to work in a very collaborative way and I like ideas to kind of develop in that way. So. In answer to how I manage my diary, I suppose uh, sort of being honest about when any project needs the most input from me. So, for example, with something like Curious Incident with Marianne, when I when we were talking about that project, you know that it needs a lot of time in rehearsal because you're really going to have to consider it and work 
very carefully. With Heisenberg, for instance, several changes of, um, of dates and things happened. But Marianne and Bunny and I discussed the fact that what we were making for the show was essentially quite installation-y. So with that, I only got back from New York on Monday, but we felt very positive we could spend the time earlier on in the project rather than watching rehearsals and working out how they were doing it. So it's sort of a period, it's sort of a, a lifetime of learning what a project will need and how to manage my time in that way. But the bottom line is I can't be in two places at once. And, it, you know, really investigating that and making sure that I give myself the time I need to do the work that I want to do. Is, is sort of the answer but yeah I do do ridiculous kind of flights from New York and uh, you know and I do tend to work as soon as I've opened something I want to be in rehearsal for the next thing um, and also there's all the projects that you're planning around the shows that you're already doing so there's a big meeting culture obviously um you, you work on many different productions a year um, and you go from project to project as you just as you just mentioned in quite a sort of concentrated way mm. and, and have to sort of um, completely change the world that you're that you're thinking about regularly which prompts me to wonder if you have uh, quite a sort of restless mind I, I think anyone who does this has to have that I think um, I mean I, we were laughing the other day that anyone who's drawn to the world of making theatre, the world of this thing that's entirely mercurial, never finished, never right, always changing. You know, what is it in all of us that's drawn to something that's like that and yet always has deadlines, always has press night, always had an, has an audience at the door at 7.30? Um, so it's incredibly rigid in some ways and yet in other ways entirely elusive. So I think that is a particular thing that clearly we're all drawn to it's a life's work doing this and yes it's never it's never boring I never I, my sort of I think the tone of your life is dictated quite often by the tone of the piece that you're doing so for example when you're doing blasted you know you walk out into the streets of Hammersmith and you see the world in a very very different way and you're doing follies you know particularly at my age and sort of my point in my career it does really make you take a step back and I think that's also quite hard for the people around you that you kind of absorb the kind of you're like a kind of litmus paper for the kind of emotional temperature of the piece you're doing as well so it's not only for us that it's very very kind of um, schizophrenic I think it's also for the people around us that we therefore become quite schizophrenic um, I read about your entry into the profession initially and it sounded quite serendipitous yeah. to say the least could you sort of talk us through that the, 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 the classic story is that I was um, I was at Goldsmiths University and uh, I was doing English and drama and uh, the summer came and in those days you could sign on in the summer and I was contemplating a summer of signing on and sort of you know not knowing what to do and my flatmate had fallen madly in love and gone to Spain and she had a job as a follow spot operator at the Hackney Empire and uh, she'd failed to tell them that she'd just gone to Spain. So they phoned to say, can Jackie come round, you know, tomorrow's her call, 9.30, Hackney Empire stage door. And for some ridiculous reason, I just thought, fuck it. And I just went, yep, she'll be there. And I just turned up and pretended to be her, completely ignorant of what I was about to take on. 
Fortunately, the other follow spot operator unusually was a woman, this woman Fiona, and um, she sort of, I admitted to her, I said, I'm not Jackie and I've got no idea what I'm doing. And she sort of talked me through it. But I, it, it was sort of love at first sight that I started working in this back, a bit like your stories about going backstage for the first time and the kind of the atmosphere, which is, is absolutely unique. And so it ticked so many boxes for me in terms of what I'd been searching for. Um, and was enormously good fun and really challenging and really hard and just I felt alive I felt completely alive from the moment I walked into the Hackney Empire terrified as well as adrenaline makes you feel alive doesn't it <laughs> but adrenaline's a huge part of what we do isn't it I mean every time I do a first performance every pre I can't watch press nights because of nerves you know it doesn't get easier it's interesting what you're saying about uh, entering the space and getting into that world and meet, meeting like-minded people. Mm. And I feel like the theatre people are very much drawn to other theatre-minded people. Over your career, have there been certain uh, creative people that you prefer to work with or like to work with? And, and how do you choose the projects that you take on? I think relationships because the sort of work I do, relationships are key to that. And I, and I also can identify through my career the people who I met who helped to form me into the, the designer I am. So I met Ray Smith, for example, really, really early on working with 784 Scotland. And I was at that funny stage when I kind of did lighting, you know, I was a bit of a technician and I'd do a bit of assisting. And I, but I just, you know, I was just running around doing stuff with lights wherever. And I met Ray, and she'd done all this travelling, and she was she'd been to Central, and she'd worked at the Sits, and she was a designer. And I suddenly realised, well, you know, we could wake up, stay up to sort of three in the morning, talking about stuff that was visual, and it was really exciting. And sort of, so it wasn't only the camaraderie of backstage and things. It, it, for me, the really key moments were meeting the people who really encouraged me to think in design terms. So Ray was definitely one of those. Vicky Mortimer. And then the, I don't work with that many people. It's directors for me who I've had long relationships with. So Katie Mitchell for a long time, David McVicker, Michael Grandage, you know, Rufus, Dominic Cook. You know, I sort of tend to find people and we find a way to communicate. And that's what's so key to what I do. It's funny how lighting's about stuff, isn't it? It's technical and there's kit and equipment and it, it's sort of this quite opaque world in a way but actually the most exciting thing about it is how you tell a story with it and it's actually all the technical stuff is just the tools but actually it's the ideas that are so critical and the conversation and the bouncing around those ideas you know think about Warhorse and Curious Incident and they're all about acts of kind of mass Im imaginative kind of journeys aren't they you know you, you you take an audience on a journey using a bucket and a piece of string I mean it's ridiculous really yeah but you all kind of have faith in each other and trust and you kind of make those huge leaps and someone like Marianne will enable you to do that. So yeah, relationship. And then the relationships for me with the people who encouraged me, who were my mentors like Stevie Whitson and Ben Ormerod and you know, other lighting designers who just went, come on, you know, you can, you can do more than just doing the technical side. You can do the kind of dreaming side as well. So. I, I was going to uh, observe that it, it, it sounds like you um, uh, like working with people who 
who enable you to take a fuller role in the vision of the show beyond just the the lighting elements particularly that's absolutely vital to me and I think it's funny isn't it that every aspect of making a show I think is about casting and I think casting isn't purely about the actors on stage it's about the kind of stage manager you want it's the kind of designer you want it's the people you want to go on that journey with for a director and I think in terms of casting there are situations that I'm good in and situations I'm not so good in you know I, I, I always laugh that the kind of Howard Davis who was here for so many years such a brilliant director but in a way I could see that I would irritate him when I worked with him because I was sort of asking too much and I was sort of overstepping a mark I'm not I I I do lighting yes but actually I make theatre and I'll do whatever that takes and I you know I think that's why Rufus has given me the role I have here and that I just I'm really interested in how we do it how we make it good how we for the people, all of us working on it, and in a bigger th- in a bigger sort of context in terms of a building like this, how we involve everybody and make all of our lives better doing this amazing thing. And we're so lucky to do it as well. It's also holding on to that, isn't it? Obviously, there's been huge changes in the technical side of lighting and now the use of video within lighting design and the incorporation of that. Do you enjoy those advances? Do you embrace them? Do you have to keep... I mean, it's a bit of a rhetorical question, I presume, but how do you work with the advances that are happening within... I I think the... The key thing with technology is that technology for its own sake isn't necessarily interesting, is it? So the most, what I'm really interested in is why we want to use it and then how we make it kind of creative and how we make it bend to that rather than it sort of, you know, so often technology can dominate. So I think what's interesting about something like Curious Instant, people always want to talk to Finn and I about and Bunny about the kind of nature of, you know, how we did that. And kids love it because it's very overt in its use of technology. And that that's a, it was a conscious decision because we felt that Christopher, the central character, would have loved that. But whenever people wheel us in to talk about it, all we talk about is the conversations we have. You know, we can talk about Ethernet and nodes and gateways and kind of... But actually, we're using technology to, to, as a tool, and the point is, is what we do with it, not the technology itself. So I, I love the parallels with that show, because you sort of go, actually, the sort of control map of that show would be something that Christopher Boone would love, because it's so complex in terms of what's triggering what and who's doing what at the time and you know where we've got which way we get data flowing and things like that. But, of course, all of that is only only a tool that allows us to tell a story, isn't it? But then in telling that, you're kind of wrestling with the technology and what we end up doing all the time is pushing the technology as far as it can possibly go. So it's quite interesting when something new comes along, what quite often happens, like, like video, is you go, great, we can use that, but actually it's this little corner of what it can do over here which is really exciting, or how do we interweave that into what we do, or 
yeah it's all very well and good but actually the quality of the light it produces isn't isn't good enough or something so we were asking quite complex questions of it because we want it to we want to be able to dictate what it does rather than it dictate to us so I, I think it's by using it and it being in the hands of people who are interested in the creative conversations that you start to find a more interesting use of it I mean I think it felt for a while like video was so dominant and everybody was putting it in every show and it just felt like this kind of almost separate layer and yet actually with good designers and good collaboration it kind of really integrates and then it starts to become something that's really it's just another tool isn't it really it's just another it's like a paintbrush or like like a single lantern it's like it's not the thing itself it's what you do with it yeah yeah but um yeah it's been, it's been interesting being a big part of that conversation and i think the only thing that i keep doing is i keep keep banging away at the people who come in with the title video designer because I'm going it says designer so come in here and design make have the conversation make it collaborative don't just think it's just content that you put on a surface and that's it you know it's like what surface are we using and what are we using it for and how does how does light because it's light as well you know so how do we make that you know, in mosquitoes, we absolutely use the projection as a light source. So we fill, you know, all those things that projection designers hate, like we fill the space with smoke. So you see the beams of light, so it creates that kind of three-dimensional effect and reflected effect. So you're kind of doing, asking it to do things that on paper it shouldn't be doing, but actually makes it much more fun and malleable as well. What's the process when, when you, when you uh, approach a production? How do you go about finding your vision for that production. Let, let's use Follies as an yeah. example. So my my start point, once, usually, okay, usually a director and designer will, so I've agreed to do a project, how do you, so, which is generally about if I want to do the piece and who it's with, you know, and all those kind of questions. And generally a designer and director will go off and kind of think about a world and a what get to a white card stage before I get involved so they'll decide how they want to do it what kind of world we're talking about so as soon as I get involved it's usually at a really rough early model stage where they're sort of doing a sort of feasibility does this look like something we could pursue and the first thing that I ask myself when I look at that is why is light in the room so it's not only I mean, you could say in theatre, okay, lights in the room to illuminate a performance for an audience. But beyond that, what, what's it doing there? Is it supposed to be naturalistic? Is it about the objects in the room? Is it very abstract? Is it, is it the thing that's like war horses or curious? Is it the thing that's telling the story and taking you on the journey? Is it, you know, with follies, you, you've got these extraordinarily complex layers of a derelict theatre, which is an actual space, and then you've got, so the sort of real event is happening in this space full of derelict, you know, derelict old stuff, kind of, and it's a landscape as well. And also, because we're doing it in the Olivier, you're not being literal about that. So Vic's design kind of had gestures to do with that. But then there's the layer of, you know, in actual storytelling terms, this guy Weissman has got together this evening and he's made a bit of a gesture to sort of try and make these women sort of remember the past. So there's a bit of... So there's a kind of derelict 19, you know, turn of the century theatre that was last used regularly in the sort of late 40s. 
And then there's the kind of 1970s technology that he sort of brought in in a slightly cheaper, nasty way to kind of fluff it a bit. You know, and there's the old sign that he might have kind of mended and kind of, you know, is a bit of a centrepiece of the whole event. And then there's the fact that within that, they go into memory moments. So you also need to be able to lift out of both of those things to kind of create a th their sort of fantasy of who they are or who they were. And then there's Loveland, which is this kind of bizarre section at the end when everything kind of just explodes open. So you've sort of got the world of the ghosts, the world of the present day, the world of the imagination. So you, so you sort of, that's the level that you're talking about all the way through. And, you know, the first layer for me with Follies was the derelict space and how that might be in the landscape of old lights in, in a theatre, in a weird sort of mixture of kind of 1940s to 1970s old kit. And also because of the, because of the, the sort of themes of Follies, it really felt like the light needed to be in the space. It wasn't about the Olivier and what was way out of view. It was kind of bringing it into play because, you know, all the images we have of the theatre of the past, of course, it, like the, your book itself, it involves light and smoke and bits of old scenery and costume and, and how we create magic using those elements. So in a way with Follies, we're talking about when you create magic using really simple declared elements so it wanted to be very declared so that's why there's sort of equipment all over the space yeah. um so that sort of make it, it really does make sense um <laughs> and it's interesting because th 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 there might be an assumption that that you bring a sort of particular aesthetic mm. with you from from the beginning but it sounds like you very much discover the aesthetic from from whatever the project happens to be i i i i hope that i designed specifically for every show that I do. I mean, obviously there are things that I'm drawn to and I have a particular way of seeing and thinking. Yeah. And um, I sort of realized at the moment, I was thinking about, you know, quite recently that there are habits that I have. And I was thinking, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, I try and, I try and really, really drill down on every show to what it really needs. I love stripping things back. I'm sort of obsessed with the idea that every show you do can be based on one really good idea and actually it's just a question of seeing that through to the nth degree and I think you know I, I suppose in some ways my work tends to be quite Amish in a way it's quite kind of stripped back to sort of um, it, it's an, it's a simple gesture or and I like taking things to an extreme as well so it sort of feels like it's got quite a strong aesthetic because it's probably only one very simple thing that's essentially creating it but I just love to take one idea and take it apps push it as far as I possibly can because that's then you start to really make changes and make the space very alive to kind of simple possibility and I also think there's a pact with the audience about saying these are what these are the things we're using to tell our story now come with us and then also what's brilliant about that is you can completely pull the rug from under people's feet and completely change that if you want to, but you know, actually establishing your storytelling kind of tools. So things like the overture in Follies, you know, when that girl appears at the top in that way and she's wearing that extraordinary costume and she's sort of floating in that sort of grey, hazy, sort of, like, sort of slightly lonely, quite derelict darkness, you go, okay, I sort of get what's happening now. 
another moment I want to highlight in one of your productions was the very end of Angels in America mm. where and this really made me appreciate the work that you do because the house lights come up as Pryor's de- delivering his big finale speech um, and I sat there in the audience and suddenly it was the it was that obviously breaking of the fourth wall but you realised in that very specific moment the power of of light in a space and what it does in terms of the focus in terms of the balance of um, uh, audience and, and, and performers and, yeah. and the, the, the amount of control that you have as a lighting designer is probably more than any other creative on that team actually I, I, I think it's quite interesting sometimes that I when I first started working in lighting I was working in music and one of the great things about working with bands and in, in that sort of very immediate space is that you become very, very quickly aware of how what you do can affect an audience. So I remember things like when we'd have, I used to work at the Astoria and we'd have like bands, so the support band would come on and play and then, you know, the main band would be buggering about backstage, you couldn't be bothered to come on stage, which is quite common. And you'd have to kind of tr- try and keep the audience sort of feeling... You know, so you can sort of just go to working light and everyone sort of hangs around and has a bit of a drink. But, you know, when there's a sense that someone's coming on stage, you used to just kind of try and whip them up with lighting and things. And you just realise that you've got this amazing tool that people really respond to but don't really understand they're responding to. Um, so, yeah, and, and Marianne was really clear with Angels that it was seven a seven-and-a-half-hour journey. And we just had to really be careful about what we were how what we were unleashing you know you just had to keep a lid on it keep a lid on it keep a lid on it so I think we sort of as a team the ideas were kind of really kind of carefully graded you know in grades kind of dripped in and dripped in the space kind of pulled and pulled and pulled so that kind of revolve for the first play, which is very controlled and very downstage and the spaces are really small. The journey from that to prior being able to take the Littleton and also that, you know, we're li- we light from way, b- ev- everything's been really controlled and suddenly we're lighting from the grid and we're lighting, we're exposing the whole of this space, which has been about artifice up till then. And then that exposure leads to the audience. I mean, the idea of bringing the house lights up to me generally brings me out in hives because you kind of go but actually at the end of that journey it felt hugely cathartic and also Tony breaks the fourth wall with his speech then anyway so you feel that it's doing the thing that the writer wants it to do that it's going you know it's a shared moment and that's so extraordinarily sort of it's such a collective shared moment particularly if you do a double show day and I love the fact we didn't do a curtain call on a double show day in, the, in between the two shows, because you go, no, we're, we're in it for the long haul. So you just kind of, it's, it's properly cathartic. And just things like trying to find a rhythm for that and trying to keep Prior Walter bright without, because actually what you want it to feel for the audience is that like we've just taken the lid off it. You don't want them to feel lit. You want them to feel allowed. So it's a kind of real emotional moment as well, isn't it? That you're trying to make something where it's got a real ease about it and where suddenly people aren't feeling, oh, God, I'm in the spotlight, but just feeling sort of allowed to share. That was the... So you just, you know, take the lid off it slowly. It was a great example of, of, of everything you've been saying about sometimes the sort of simplest... Uh, uh, 
approach can 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 elicit incredibly effective mm. results and um uh that that's one of numerous <laughs> moments you've given me in theatres over oh, the years um, it, it really is um i, I want to talk a little bit about uh the the industry actually and mm. and, and your your um your experiences of it i i you, you've spoken previously about uh issues of, of gender balance in mm. in um uh, design and technical roles i wondered if um you feel you've seen progress through through your career and and and, and what your sort of major uh concerns are for the future not not necessarily in in a negative way but 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 what do you think are the important things the industry needs to do to to sort of keep this momentum going as it were is there momentum? That's is there momentum? Is, I, the mo- course, is there momentum? I mean, the interesting thing about the shifts in technology within specifically the world of, of lighting, for example, is that we are using a lot more uh, programmers, we're using a lot more kind of computing skills, a, a lot more varied skills. Um, I would say the best programmers in the UK at the moment, possibly the best programmers in the world, are women. They are absolutely extraordinary. And that's really exciting, but they are all still, with the exception of this building, the National Theatre, very marginalised and tending to find themselves in an environment which is very male-dominated. And that's incredibly wearing. And. Uh, we, I'm sort of very sad that, you know, I, there were women working in the industry before me, of course, and there are, there are women coming through the industry now, but we are still absolutely in the minority. And when you start to talk about any kind of, um, I mean, gender balance is one thing, but, you know, you look at the lack of BAME people within the backstage disciplines, within lighting, you know, we actually actively have to be looking at the world that we are working in and creating for people to work in. Um, and that can't be notional. I mean, I, I've recently been approached about, you know, there's a lot of pockets of money for educational opportunities for people. And of course, you know, people are saying, wouldn't it be great to get a, a, a young woman from the BAME community into the back, these backstage disciplines? And you go, yeah, it's great, but also you need to give people safe spaces to be in. And um, I realised that conversations about collaborators, the brilliant thing that I found were amazing women who absolutely made, gave me a safe place to develop as a designer. And if we want to encourage people into the business, we need to give them safe spaces to be, and there aren't enough of them. Um, and I think why we've moved on, you know, the world I worked in, particularly when I worked in the music business, you know, the, the sexism was so overt, it was actually ridiculous and comical and would make me laugh. And very, very easy to combat. Yeah. Um, I think the problem now is that so much of the inequality that we experience is subconscious. Um, there is that amazing example of what's, what happened with the um, Musicians Union in the United States and about introducing anonymous um, auditions um, and that immediately you know, the figures went to almost 50-50. But and people who were actively trying to say we've got a very open door policy for gender balance within auditions 
it was their subconscious that was make help it was making them make choices about male players over female as soon as they're not looking at who's playing you know the playing field became very very leveled and i fear that that's the area that we need to be looking at and so when we're looking at you know diversity we need to really ask ourselves some long hard questions about years and years of subconscious prejudice and uh that's not happening enough. But safe spaces are vital and you make them for yourself, but we need to offer them more. Um, and, you know, that needs to be proper, rigorous, joined up. So that's my fear, is that I fear there's a kind of whole world of buzzwords at the moment where people are talking about diversity, but they're not supporting it in the right way. I've got one final question for you, um, because I think there'll be a lot of... Uh, emerging and young creatives and technicians that will be very interested in what you've had to say would you what would be your single piece of advice to anybody entering the profession at the moment um, as to how how best to go about growing their careers I think the most important thing for me all the way through my career has been relationships has been the people that I find have found who I work well with and who push me to be better. You know, I, I was talking to Ian McNeil after Angels in America and Ian's an extraordinary designer and I've only worked with him a few times, I've known him a long time. But he, his approach to design is different to anyone I know and it's really complicated and it's always contrary, but it always makes you better. And it always makes you better in a safe, space as well he his you know we have to take risks doing what we do if you stop taking risks just stop doing it so so finding places where you encourage your each other to be better where you make it supportive you, we can't i can't do this job on my own it's such teamwork the world of theater is entirely teamwork and it's about we are as good as the people that we work with and the, the way we communicate our ideas and the ideas we develop, as, develop together. And so finding people to make work with, finding people who make you better, finding people who support you being you, that's absolutely critical, um, whether it's whatever level you're at. Um, the people who challenge you and excite you and also make you go home at the end of the day going, actually my shoulders have just dropped a little bit today because it feels okay. Because ultimately we all need a voice to do this really well and then that voice becomes a collective voice and it becomes that amazing thing that it can be. So yeah, find those people. Thank you very oh, much. It's an absolute and, pleasure. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Thank yeah. you for smart questions. Oh, well. That's great. It makes it much easier. <laughs> we try. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Thanks, Polly. Oh, thank you. That was really nice. Polly Constable there, a lighting designer extraordinaire. Uh, now, before we wrap up, if you are a theatre professional and want to join the network built by theatre professionals for theatre professionals, a network growing every day, then head on over to CurtainCallOnline.com. Sign up for a free Curtain Call profile with the code CCFREE. That's CCFREE in all caps. As I mentioned at the start of the show, this week we're relaunching the website and it's full of features that we built in close collaboration with the theatre industry. We've had a lot of people, talked to a lot of people, guilds, associations, actors, designers, directors, production technicians, 
casting directors. Did I mention them? Anyway, they were all helpful in uh, getting us to build the website that we all need. So log on to CurtainCallOnline.com, take a look around, and be sure to sign up. You can follow us on all the socials, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, that's at Curtain Call. We'd love to hear from you if you have any suggestions or feedback for the podcast. Just get in touch with us via any of the social media platforms I just mentioned or write to me at john at curtaincallonline.com. And that just leaves me to thank Polly Constable for uh, allowing Theo and Matt to uh, both um, have a little chat and take some photos. And um, she is constantly doing some insanely beautiful lighting designs at the National Theater. So when you're there, look in the program or look on the Curtain Call website and see what she's done uh, previously. Uh, thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Curtain Call Theater Podcast, and I will catch you all next week. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.